Telecast. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to this week's Telecast. Back to the union for 40,000 staff, contract, and freelance workers in the UK's media and entertainment industries last week declared an emergency as large numbers of TV professionals are facing unprecedented gaps in employment in the unscripted sector. I'm discussing the current talent market in the UK, what to do if you're laid off or struggling to land that next gig, and tips on how to get headhunted with talented people's Kimberly Godbolt. It's coming right up on this week's telecast. My guest on this week's show is Kimberly Godbolt, Joint MD of Executive Search and Freelance TV Industry Staffing Company. Talented people, welcome to Telecast Kimberly. How are you? Thank you so much, Justin. I am really well. Thank you. Slightly sweaty from a brisk school run, but um, all good. Thank you. So, Kimberly, great to have you on the show and particularly pressing, I think, as chatting this week with all the turbulence in the talent market in the UK right now and uh, perhaps the same in uh, many other territories. Be interesting to hear our listeners from around the world if they are experiencing many of the issues that, that are going on in the UK right now. But before we get into that in detail, tell us a little bit about talented people and what you do. I run Talented People, which is, um, as you rightly said in your nice intro, a an executive search and freelance staffing company with my partner, Rosie Turner. We work across the industry, predominantly unscripted, but we also do bits and bobs in scripted. And we place premium talent in behind the scenes roles. There's a silly thing in TV, isn't there, where the word talent can mean both on-screen talent, as in celebrity, and behind the screen. So we are very much the behind the screens people, the people that you see at the end of the credits. Um, those are the people that we both know, but also strive to know by casting our net really wide. I mean, that that's a, a big topic in itself in that, you know, we feel very strongly at talented people that, of course, it's great that our, our own experiences in production and content making lead us to make these brilliant relationships with people um, and know the best talent um, at the top, you know, whether that's directors, execs, you know, production management, but actually there are always new brilliant people that perhaps fly under the radar or that haven't been given an opportunity yet. And that's where we are constantly looking um, and and striving to meet and get to know those people and, and their work so that we can keep them in the mix for these important jobs. Because as we get more and more senior in, in, in our careers, there are fewer jobs. Therefore, those jobs, as we know, are not as or haven't historically been as open to people from different backgrounds. And that is absolutely key in making sure that our output is relevant and representative and awesome. Is it only production staff that you deal with, Kimberly, or do you work with production companies and networks and other media businesses to place executives in like commissioning roles, for example, as well? Or is it purely TV production in unscripted that you're focused on with working productions? To be honest, we've been on a bit of a journey in terms of the company. We're six years old now. And when Rosie and I set it up, people knew us as the talent team at Betty. And they knew us there from working on freelance roles predominantly and some in-house exec roles. That's sort of where we got started and, you know, where everybody's story is when you set up a business. It's, it's why people come to you. They think of you for that thing. 
But I think through through our work and and also, you know, I was a director, Rosie's been in talent forever, and we've built this awesome team around us. We have been placing execs, both on projects and in-house at companies, so sort of director of programs, creative director in independent production companies, but also now in broadcasters and streamers, we're sort of talking commissioners, um, execs, production execs in channels and streamers as well at networks. Right. So you're working right across the board and you can see sort of both sides of the industry to a certain extent. It's fascinating. And actually, do you know what is, uh, has been brilliant? Because and where we, we really push the human side of it, I think, you know, re- recruitment, it's such a funny word. It's, it's not a word that Rosie and I are fans of, however ridiculous that sounds. We don't feel like recruiters because we have come from that real coalface production background we've just come into the role for various reasons that I'm sure we'll go into but it feels like we know those roles because we've done those roles and anything sort of recruitery feels very icky to us we feel like we are sort of talent partners we are collaborators we work with those companies. So I mean when it comes to your background then you touched on it slightly a second ago when you said you were at Betty can you Give us an idea of, you know, your career journey so far, how you got into TV originally and how you ended up where you are now running Talented People. Sure. I was one of those probably slightly annoying people who always knew what they wanted to do. Sort of definitely 13, 14, I would watch TV and think, oh, that that is amazing. I would love to know how they make that. And I would I would find all the behind the scenes stuff that I could not that there was a lot of it back then but anything where I could see a camera or a light I thought I want to do that I didn't know anyone in TV it was totally my own call my parents were slightly perplexed I think but very supportive I did that thing where I wrote because I'm that old hand wrote letters and posted them to try and get some work experience but I also went to uni Um, I was sort of forced down the road of, well, you're quite academic, so you should go and also get a degree. So I did languages at uni. Kind of part of me was sort of appeasing the parents and thinking, okay, fair enough. Just in case the media thing doesn't pan out, I'll do something academic. Uh, Not that media is not academic, but you know what I mean? I'll try and get another skill set. And also, maybe if I do French and German, I might get a job in um, a place in the sun. Mm. Or actually, maybe I should have done Italian for that. But um, either way, I wrote off to loads of places. I did sort of work experience and got running jobs in the holidays at university um, when I came back home. Yes, yeah, so I came up through, do you remember Esther, the chat yes. show? Justin, yeah. I did that. That was brilliant. I did, I did some running on things like Fame Academy. Uh, I think my first junior researcher job was on Big Brother's Little Brother, Series 2. And then I just did the thing where you sort of, you know, make lots of contacts, you keep in touch with everyone, you show willing, you work bloody hard. And I absolutely loved it. It was absolutely the right thing for me. So I feel very lucky, actually, that I knew what I wanted to do. I went out and got it. That's pretty rare, actually. I mean, who who was the person that gave you your big break then? Good question. I would say... <laughs> she's no longer in the industry, but we all still talk about her like our our joint mother. But Jules Waring of RDF, or when she was at RDF, she gave me one of my first researcher jobs. I think it was on a wife swap back in that era. But there's been people along the way, you know, who 
kind of part mentored me or if I kept in touch with they would sort of take me on to that next production with them the networking thing I I was always pretty good at and I, I always push that to people even if it's not your thing you have to keep in touch with people So I I came up through the ranks like that. And eventually, I mean, I knew I wanted to direct. And I started, my first big break in directing was on a format called uh, The Fairy Job Mother at Studio Lambert. I don't think it went global, Justin, let's be fair. But um, it was a a pretty good stepping stone into a sort of, you know, a Channel 4, 9 o'clock constructed doc format that, you know, was pretty loose within it. Lots of contributors to handle, lots of stories to pull out, but equally some confines of a a format. And, I mean, I I absolutely, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I remember, because I'm quite a small blonde person um, and I loved self-shooting. And some of it involved some self-shooting. And I remember very clearly um, going to film a, a particular scene with a family. Um, and one of the, the contributors, the guy, was sort of looking at me as I was unpacking my camera. And he looked at me and then looked past me and went, when's the cameraman turning up then? <laughs> and I was like, um, yeah, hi. So I'm the director. I'm Kimberly, and I'll be shooting uh, shooting uh, this today. And I'm really good, by the way. I probably didn't say that, but I said that in my head. And I remember really, like, really fighting against that. Actually, that was something that I remember very clearly. I, I really wanted to do the technical thing. I wanted to be very good at filming because it felt like a a tangible skill. I think there's so many times in TV where you just feel like, what do I actually know? I can talk a lot and I'm quite convincing and I can set up a shoot, I suppose, but they all feel quite soft skills. They all feel quite woolly. Whereas I loved the technical and I loved the camera and I really wanted to be great at that. So I worked, I worked hard at that, got through a lot of prejudice because of it and uh, ended up, you know, then directing Undercover Boss and I don't know if you remember the series that um, Heston Blumenthal made um, when he tried to turn the little chef around called Big Chef, Little Chef. That's right. That was just ace. And so all of those stories where you had to get the human side of um, of it and then, you know, other documentaries too that probably flew under the radar, but I was proud of. I mean, I was never an Ollie Lambert BAFTA Emmy Award winning director, but I was really proud of what of what I did. Yeah. You know, it's very rare and I'm sure very valuable somebody coming into building a staffing business with that sort of background and that sort of perspective. So how did you go from directing these shows to actually setting up talented people? I suppose I'd been directing for about four or five years and I was starting to think about the next thing, but I was also starting to think about having a family. And there is the crux of it. I started to interview for series producer roles. I felt very conscious as a woman that I was trying for a baby. And I remember going to some interviews pregnant, actually, and wondering, agonising over whether or not to tell my interviewer that that was my situation. I found that very lonely and found that very difficult to navigate I took a development job because I I was pregnant. I was five months pregnant at, at that point and I had sort of passed on the series producer jobs. And I thought, I'm just going to see how this goes. Um, I don't know how it's going to pan out, how my life will change after children. But I love TV. I don't want to leave TV. I'm going to try and make it work. So I had my first child uh, in 2013 and 
had about six months off work. Um, I had to get back pretty quick. So I was one of the, well, I was the main breadwinner, really. And I found that difficult. I went back to this development job, but I still felt like I, I was compromising on both my job and my life as a mum by leaving the office at sort of half or five to try and get back for bedtime. Sometimes I couldn't because the tubes were rubbish or the, you know, the trains weren't working. And I had pushed a, a phone call to the next day, which probably wasn't the right call for work because there might've been something happening in their, in their life that I would miss, but Oh no, I've, I've now got home and I've, I've missed most of bedtime. And now I feel guilty. I, I really went through the mill with those emotions. And I, I know that is something that a lot of women identify with um, who become mums in TV. So after a little while, I decided to start looking at another role within TV. But again, I was very torn. I felt like the moment that I said out loud that I think I'd quite like to talent manage or do something slightly different that didn't involve going away and filming all the time, I thought my value as a director would go right down. And I thought, but what if it doesn't work in talent or this other role that I find and I have to go back to directing and now everyone knows that I'm, I don't love it anymore. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm stuck. So I, I really agonized over that. And um, eventually I, I got an email from Rosie, my now business partner, who was head of talent at Betty. And she said, come in for a chat. I, she knew me as a director. She tried to hire me lots of times before. She likes to tell me now. We talked it through. I told her my worries. I told her why I also th thought that I would really enjoy talent and be good at it. And she and Isabel, um, the head of production there, gave me gave me a role. And thankfully, I, I never looked back. So I had an in-house role for a couple of years um, as a talent manager at Betty, trying to hire all the women who had um, left or were considering leaving TV in certain roles. So that was ironic. But I felt I'd found a, a career doing something where I could still bring great value, great knowledge, but without having to drop everything at the last minute and go away and not see my children for a couple of weeks. So I, I worked in that role at, at Betty for, um, I think it was nearly three years and I had my second child while I was there. Not literally while I was there, that would have been unpleasant for everybody. But I then came- good TV though. <laughs> would have been good TV, you're right. Uh, but I came back after maternity leave, after my daughter was born and went, gosh, this is this landscape is a bit different. So this this is 2016, 20, yeah, 2017, I think I came back and the all three thing had happened with Betty and role, roles were being um, kind of cut back and merged, etc. So it felt like a very different environment. Rosie had already left because of her husband's job. And I went, you know what? I feel like I need to do something a bit more exciting. And I think I've always had this, this ambition, Justin. I've, 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 I feel lucky. Again, maybe that goes back to, to my childhood where I just knew what I wanted to do and I, 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 I worked it out and I figured it out and I went and got it. But I felt like, yes, I had got a staff job for three years doing this talent managing job, which was fantastic while the babies were small, but I had more in me. And I didn't really love working for someone else. As a director, I had always been freelance, of course. Mm. So much to my um, husband's dismay, because he 
used to find my freelance life and not knowing what I was going to earn from one month to the next incredibly stressful. So he was he was so pleased when I got a staff job, less pleased when I came home one day and went, yeah, so uh, I've been chatting to Rosie, who was living in France at this point, and um, we've got this idea. We really want to set up a business. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean financially? <laughs> But no, we, to be honest, Rosie and I had talked throughout our time together working in talent at Betty about the fact that there was really no one, maybe one other small company in the industry who was serving all of the independent production companies and channels for talent management or, you know, staffing. You either were a big company, either a group or a big indie who had an in-house talent manager, recruiter for anyone else who thinks of them like that. Or you had no one and you just figured it out and you rang the last person you worked with. And we thought that that just seemed bonkers. Like, why was there no other offering? Why was there no one really pushing to introduce new talent, not as in junior necessarily, but different talent, fresh talent to companies to stop them just from ringing their mates all the time? Also, to provide a really great professional service um, to companies who just didn't have an in-house person. I mean, you ask any other industry, they always have somebody who helps them with staffing. And let alone in an industry like TV, where it's so predominantly freelance, you need support and you need to do things properly. And unfortunately, that is something that doesn't seem to happen very well, um, certainly in the UK unscripted market. So we saw that potential and we decided to go for it, even though it terrified both of us. Uh, I don't think I would have done it alone. I don't think Rosie would have done it alone. But we decided to to set up talented people, start small, you know, bring along the people that that trusted and knew us, and really push into those companies that that needed support but couldn't afford the in house person. And and that's how it all started. You're the perfect person then to make sense of what the hell's going on in the whole TV industry talent market right now, and. Maybe we can take a, a step back because your business was set up about five years ago. Is that right? About, about yeah, 2017. 2017, you said. Yeah. Tell us about what impact COVID had on the freelance market and also, you know, indies. Can you just give us a bit of a an overview of that? And obviously, a lot of the challenges that businesses are finding now goes back to this. Not only, yeah. but, but goes back to this. Talk us through what covid was like for your business but also all of the the clients you had and and the talent that you were working with Mm, and yes it is all interlinked actually and i can bring it up to sort of where i think and why i think we're at where we're at present day when covid hit like everyone all the work dried up as we know so two or three months maybe not quite that long everyone just went oh my life, how can we ever film anything ever again? And also lots of us have commitments, whether that's small children at home or elderly family that we were worried about that we just had to, we had to look after and it had to be priority. So I think every everyone down tools for a couple of months just to cope. Once very clever production management and bosses of companies and broadcasters had figured out how to as safely as possible, film again. Everything picked up cautiously, but it it picked up. And I would say we got busy again in terms of 
projects, companies, broadcasters calling us to help them with talent easily within four or five months of it breaking out. But also, actually, we had been busy pretty much throughout in the senior placement side of things. People were still thinking strategically. They were thinking development, as you can imagine. You know, what can we make? Therefore, we need the best people who can do this. So there was still that sort of game of chess happening, albeit with lots of email blurb going, I hope this finds you okay. And how's your family, etc. Fast forwarding a little, between six months and then two years after COVID first broke out, we had this massive production boom. It was kind of great. It was exciting. It was difficult, though, because people were still juggling their personal lives. And this was being fueled, obviously, by a lot of the SVODs and the boom in people watching digital services. We could have probably looked forward and seen that the way that it's subsiding now. That was massively fueled by the increase in, uh, in viewing hours and demand for content. Definitely. And, you know, the stuff that was fast tracked through, like, you know, BBC education, the stuff that people really needed as well as wanted because we were all just sitting at home watching telly. So definitely that boom was because people needed and wanted more content. And it's funny, isn't it? I think when, when we look back now, now that we're in this lull, this very quiet moment, I think it was never sustainable. I don't think, you know, this time last year where we were still mega busy we had so many roles on our books we still had lots of permanent placements that we were working on it was not sustainable we were sort of making hay while the sun shone I suppose or or not realizing that it would go pop in quite such a way that I think it has now when was the height of the boom for you then was it a year ago or 18 months ago yeah probably somewhere around then but yeah I'd say probably just over a year ago because I heard lots of stories, certainly on the scripted side, when it came to production, that Netflix, for example, and various other streamers around the world were coming into productions and essentially hijacking freelancers and tripling their salaries to come yeah. to them on that. I mean, what was your experience of seeing that happen and uh, and how did that affect the market from your perspective? It was very unhealthy and there was a lot of unethical behavior i think in that boom time um you know we are, we were incredibly busy with production management roles um because no one could find a line producer or a product exec or a pm for love nor money they had either hunkered down left the industry very sadly or were just simply booked up and burnt out and there were all kinds of things going on that you know I, I just don't think should have happened nor would happen now like people sort of gazumping if you like yeah. companies or other roles coming along and just going well we really need you we really want you so whatever you're on now we'll pay you 200 a quid a week more and you need to leave and and people would actually do that isn't there a contract that a freelancer signs with a production company on a production that would essentially you know, they would be breaking that if if they accepted a, a, a role in the middle of a production? There's a notice period. There's always notice periods yeah. and they're usually pretty short. So I don't think, and I just don't think we're set up properly. I think contracts are probably pretty rubbish, yeah. to be honest. You know, they, they haven't been updated recently. I wonder if that's a thing now that will happen. But there's no sort of, you know, cancellation fees or penalties for 
freelancers, nor is there really for employers because employers, you know, as we all know, will sometimes have to pull the plug on a production and everybody's gone within a week. So it's a very precarious place to work as a freelancer, certainly. And there was all kinds of bad behaviour, I think, going on last last year. And, you know, as a, as a company, as a person, I'm, you know, we are hugely supportive of what incredible things production management do. And they are so often overlooked and so often under-respected and a massive shout to them. There was a difficult patch though last year where I think people quite rightly started asking for more money, but it got to a point where actually they were asking for too much. And now really people can't afford them or people are having to drop their rates right back down. It was sort of a case of overinflation of everybody, not just PMs as well. You know, there were certainly directors who were saying, well, I've got seven other offers. I'll take this job, but I'm going to ask 500 quid more a week than I normally do. I mean, it was it was nuts. And I don't think it was very healthy at all. And I think we're going to come back now, or we have come back down to earth. Uh, and now it's a question of how do we get the right balance back? Because we've, we're almost in a an overcorrection period where it's not just sort of quiet and, oh, okay, it's gone back to how it used to be. It's it's way under that and a lot of people are suffering because of it. So it's even more cruel, to be honest, Justin. You know, it's even more, you know, after that year or two of really busy, great work and probably burnout, now it's gone to the exact opposite of, as, you know, Beck do have declared a state of emergency and unscripted, um, have, have really come down to, wow, where is the work and... I can't afford to to live my usual life. Do you find that uh, some of the people that basically were offered, you know, these ridiculous projects, well, say ridiculous, but, you know, it's supply and demand, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. They basically dropped their current role to to hop onto another production that was paying them, say, three times as much. Do you think the people that did that regret that now? I mean, because presumably there must have been a lot of trust broken with producers at that point because if that happens to a producer in the middle of a production mm-hmm. particularly at that point where the hell are they going to get a replacement from at that point and right. where does that leave their budget they have to go back to their client which is the network or the streamer yeah it's all kinds of wrong really yeah. isn't it i think i think and in answer to your question i think Bridges did get burnt last year, but I I also think it was so hectic and mad. I wonder if that producer has even remembered the name of that person. It was so difficult. And often, actually, it would be a case of people would accept a job and actually not start the job. They would then just move on, go go somewhere else. It was very hard to even pin that person down to start it because they got offered something in inverted commas better yeah yeah so i'm not i'm not going to miss that time to be honest and you know trying to navigate that as a company who prides themselves on a good ethical reputation that was that was challenging let's bring it up to date now we're looking at very much the downslope from that time the industry shrinking you know we're seeing layoffs practically every week by a lot of the big U.S. media companies, Disney, Paramount, also a lot of the social media companies that we're seeing, you know, announcing 20,000 job cuts globally seemingly every week. We're seeing a huge cost of living crisis. We're seeing interest rates rising, still rising. We're seeing less production and 
you can't really see that coming back. There is less production. More and more people are getting laid off, both in executive and also freelance production roles. Mm -hmm. What advice can you give those people who've been cut? What crumbs of comfort can you give them? And what advice would you have to help them get back on the horse? Because particularly when it comes to, you know, senior, or it doesn't need to be senior, it could be mid-management roles, working for a streamer or working for a big company, and they think, fantastic, I've made it, I'm at Disney or whoever it might be. Then, you know, the brutal job cuts come, and then, you know, where am I going to get my next gig from? You know, I mean, what advice can you give those people? It is really, really challenging. And actually what has been a learning curve for me as well is that you sometimes you want to say to these people, hold on, it'll be okay. The next thing will come soon. There's green shoots of of new work coming through, but you can't hold on indefinitely. I have been in that position. I have actually as a, as a freelancer had to sign on to the dole to get my job seekers allowance back in the day. And it's really hard to hear people go, oh, just hold on. Things are coming around the corner. You know, it might be only be a month or two. A month or two when you're paying rent or mortgage, you have a family to feed or even just yourself. It's a long time. So there's part of me that wants to tell people that it'll be fine. Um, You know, things are coming through. And of course we have, I mean, look at our jobs board, there are still jobs on there. But I don't want to give that sort of false comfort that, you know, within a month or two, everything will be back to normal, because I really don't think that's going to be the case. Personally, I think it's going to be a very slow rest of the year. I mean, hopefully September, October, we'll see some new commissions, but I don't think it's going to be anything on the scale that we are used to at, at those times of year. So my advice would be to do whatever you can to cut your own costs, to find free things to do, to meet with friends and peers. Cancel um, that Netflix. Cancel. No, don't cancel Netflix. <laughs> cancel Netflix if you have to. But meet up with your mates. My biggest advice would be meet with friends, whether that's peers, um, you know, whether you're on the same seniority as as this group of people um you know your network or whether it is uh, people that you used to work with on a certain project talk to them because so many people are in the same boat it really feels good to go for a walk with them something that doesn't cost any money talk it all through don't talk about it at all just have some have some company but also in terms of practically try and use your skills in any other way whether that is copywriting, writing for social media. Think of things that you can do that would be of help to another industry and just push your services out there. I mean, LinkedIn is an amazing place to find um, similar minded or, you know, similar industry sort of people who might have work that's not traditionally what you do. Or do you know what? You know, we've known lots of people who've, you know, in these quieter patches have, have got a job as a delivery driver. I mean, that was a COVID thing. It's a thing again now. And that's okay. And I don't. people get really hung up on what are they going to put on their CV. And I would say, just don't worry. This is a case of survival. And every job that you do or every moment in time has a story. And you will find your own story from that. And you know what? More than More than anything, you will have an experience that will give you something else. I, I always find something comes out of 
the most unexpected thing out of a, a conversation you have with someone might spark an idea for development. A job that you might get at your local uni or school or whatever it is in this time might really make you think, I really want to do more of this. Be optimistic and find the sort of the glass half full side of things and hunker down, save money, talk to people and try and earn some money in some other way and just don't get hung up on your CV. Yeah, because actually you know, somebody doing a job as a delivery driver or whatever that might be actually speaks a lot to character, doesn't it? I think if you're going for your next role and it's not something to be embarrassed about, it's, you know, if somebody who's been in a high-flying exec position and then for whatever reason, the whole of their family income, if, you know, if their partners also lose their job, which is uh, very possible at the moment. Yeah, it really is. It's about survival. It is. And actually, you know, I'm... If you happy for me to talk about the Imposter Club, so our um, podcast, the Imposter Club, speaks exactly to this. We talk to senior industry figures who have had experiences you would never otherwise know, um, and who have overcome career challenges, personal problems, and who you look up to and assume have had a maybe an easy ride or you just never think that someone who runs a company or uh, is a commissioner has got this these sorts of stories and the whole purpose of the imposter club is to bring the human side of this really challenging industry into your ears and to help help people feel reassured by the fact that they're not the only ones who don't know what they're doing from time to time and are blagging it but also aren't the only ones going through difficult times and really wrestling with their own emotional roller coaster and it really does put it into perspective when you hear the sorts of people that um, we talk to on on the podcast you know, telling their story and giving their sort of hints and advice and just being really vulnerable to be honest because I do really think as an industry we are pretty rubbish at talking about how we feel mm. and it is a very subjective and cutthroat industry with a lot of bravado and I'm not up for that. I am a say it how it is kind of person. And I'm more than happy to always talk about my own experiences. And I think that that is what I'm trying to draw out from people and to tell people it's okay to say, this has been really hard. It's okay to say I was out of work for six months during this period and I went and did this. Yeah. It all builds your own story and will bring, help you bring a different perspective to whatever you do next. And also, like you say, it shows character and resilience in these difficult times. How do people listen to uh, your new podcast? Is it on all uh, all favourite podcast platforms? It is, it is. It's on, um, yeah, it's The Imposter Club on all the usual podcasting apps and also at theimposterclub.com. Go and check that out and have a listen. Now, moving forward about getting back onto the horse, two questions really. How do you get headhunted or how do you prepare yourself and make yourself more saleable to getting a new role? And maybe what are the biggest mistakes people make when they're trying to get back into work? Headhuntable. That's that's a good word that we just made up there, I think. How do you become headhuntable? Do you first of all do you headhunt? Because I mean, yeah. I, I know yeah. you know when it comes to a talent business, because everybody wants to get headhunted. I know it's very flattering, isn't yeah. it? I would love to be headhunted. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, don't worry, Rosie. I'm not going anywhere. It's funny, isn't it? Because headhunting is this 
sort of dark art, I think, or, or something that goes on in, in the background that actually, until you're quite senior, you don't realise happens. Um, and also, it's not something people really talk about. And I, I do understand why, because there is a little bit of, well, it's quite political, you know, when you're moving somebody in a senior position from one company into another position at another company, you can understand why there would be sort of high tensions and it's not the done thing to be completely upfront about it. So I do understand that you need to do it discreetly and professionally. However, I do think it's silly that people don't talk about it more. So I'm glad to be talking to you about it, to be honest, because it isn't a dark art. It's a case of being prepared, which means always having your you know, latest CV up to date in case you get tapped up. It's about being prominent and being findable on places like LinkedIn. You need to be giving a lot, I think. These days, it's not enough really just to work in your role and do nothing more if you want to get on and if you want to do other cool, exciting things that are maybe outside your remit. I think you need to give a lot for free, actually. I think you need to build your profile and not in a completely selfish way. I mean, there's always that agenda, of course, doing anything that gets your profile a bit a bit higher, higher up and out there. I really think you, you need to care about the industry that you're in and you should deliver nuggets or big things um, for free to your network to make connections. I've done it. My team have done it. It's, a, it's actually really rewarding. Because the more you write, the more you you find things and share them and the more you read from, on other people's feed and connect with people, the more you grow. I'm constantly learning and, and growing um, in all kinds of areas, whether that's to do with diversity and inclusion or to do with new genres or new talent that I didn't know. It's so important. So I think if you're putting your name out there, if you are putting your head above the parapet and being generous with your time and with your you know intelligence i suppose then that is one really good way of being discovered being headhunted because i value those sorts of people and i think you can get your personality across and your passions across and it's then more than just your cv okay and it, and it doesn't have to be just writing on linkedin does it it could also be volunteering for an industry charity or an industry organization that is working towards positive things, whether that's diversity or whatever it might be. It could also be using the time that you've got in a positive way, which will bring you into contact with new people. Definitely. Going to industry events, speaking on panels, on podcasts. I think also, like you say, actually being on being a part of a, an advisory board or um, film and TV charity, you know, they do lots of brilliant things. Absolutely. I think getting out there and, and being generous um, and f- finding what you care about. I, I think that's, that's important because you can't, you can't do stuff for free or, or write about stuff passionately if you don't care about it. It's, it's got to be something that you, you want to change or you want to be part of it for a genuine reason. And now it's time for Story of the Week, where my guests get to choose their TV industry news stories from the past seven days. Kimberly, what's your Story of the Week? It's got to be the feast to famine story um, in broadcast and lots of other publications um, and Beck 2's declaration of an emergency in 
unscripted. Right. Okay. So for our international listeners, BEC2 is the industry union, essentially, and they've called an emergency over the freelance TV community, essentially not being any work out there at all. Talk us through the story. So in the world of unscripted, as you say, Justin, in the UK, certainly it's all that label bosses and freelancers can talk about, to be honest. It's it's the discussion we, we had about the post-COVID boom um, to the scarcity of work in 2023 so far. And the article talks through how how much less work there is, how fewer roles there are, how fewer commissions there are this year compared to this time last year. And that, you know, everybody kind of assumed that December, January, February was going to be a bit like the old winters, which didn't have much work. But that March and April, we all expected to be back with a bang, making stuff again, doing what we love. And that simply hasn't happened. And you know, it just feels like to me a kind of overcorrection of that boom from last year. And it's incredibly cruel both to freelancers and small businesses alike who are having to make very difficult decisions about their teams and about their their strategy going forward. But it's really interesting, actually, Justin, because we've at work, we sort of wrestled a bit with this word emergency that Beck2 has declared. And it clearly is a very difficult situation. But the debate is whether the word emergency has been a good thing, whether that was the right word to use, the right language to use in this situation. Um, and it's caused real mixed feelings, actually. There's been a lot of chat on uh, various networks about how helpful or not that was. And obviously, the people who are right in the thick of it, who don't have a job right now, are going, hell yeah, it's an emergency. And some companies who are, you know, trying not to go under are going, oh, yeah, absolutely. But other people are saying, well, the thing is, I did have some things in the pipeline. And now that there's been an emergency declared, it's spooked everyone and it hasn't helped. Mm. Or it's going to make people leave because they're now hearing it's an emergency and, you know, they're actually only coming to the end of their contract next month and they might be okay. It's a fascinating and difficult time. And it's, I don't know, I mean, where do you sit with it? Do you feel like it's an emergency from where you're looking? Well, I certainly see that every major network, uh, international network and, and US studio are cutting or have cut their commissioning massively. And also, you know, also we've saw that uh, BBC did that at Channel 4. We see Warner Brothers Discovery there's been a massive slowdown in commissioning and that's happening as a result obviously of you know competition but also this advertising market the bottom dropping out from that and you can just see how that's affecting social media companies and the likes of meta and google shedding staff as well and that looks like it's going to continue but you know there's talk about 10 20 percent further reduction coming in in the next few months so I actually think it's a pivotal moment for the TV industry. I think that it's going to be a major contraction. I think that we're going to see a lot of businesses sadly go to the wall eventually mm-hmm. uh, that are never going to come back. And I think it's it's a really quite a hardcore cull mm. of uh, TV production businesses and TV production talent. Mm. It's definitely happening. I just I wonder how much of it is is really needed and how much of it is companies using the situation as an excuse to thin out and to sort of cut 
yeah. um, costs anyway. And I suppose that's what, and I'm also, I'm really conscious of speaking things into existence. Right? So I don't think that we can deny, obviously no one can deny what's actually happening, but the more everyone sort of talks about it, the more spooked people get and the more I think you're likely to make decisions based on what everyone else is doing rather than actually what's on your desk or what's on your plate. And there are some companies doing brilliantly. We have some clients who are still very busy and they are lucky and they know it, but they have a certain strategy in place that has has landed right for this particular moment in time. And they are busy. So I don't, that's where I'm sort of torn. Like I don't want everyone to think that it's, that nothing is happening anywhere um, and that there are companies who are still going strong um, with great, great things in the pipeline and in production. Yeah. If anything, it just goes to show any industry that you have a relatively limited number of buyers that are buying less is a precarious area. Yeah. A lot of businesses that made the leap two, three years ago to work into digital first mm-hmm. are basically f- building new businesses and content is being funded by brands and they're going direct to their own audiences. You know, that seems to me now to be the growth area. It's not area that, you know, you can expect unlimited riches in the, in, you know, in the short term. But mm. I, it, to me, it feels like it's, it's very much the future. But we'll see. I mean, it's, it's, it's an evolving situation. Yeah. Really fascinating time. And now it's time for Hero of the Week and Get in the Bin. Kimberly, you know how this works. Who's your Hero of the Week? So it's a heroine. Is there a different... Well, do we say hero or heroine these days or do we just say hero like we just say actor? Yes, I think so. Let's I go. think that works. Let's go heroine yeah. of the week. So my favourite person at the moment, this is actually a kind of personal, but it's also an industry person is Nicola Hill, who up until recently was co-CEO of The Garden. So we had a conversation on the Imposter Club this week and she's such an inspiring woman. And I don't use that word lightly because it's banded around a lot, isn't it? But it's no small thing, right, to ask really senior people to sort of unburden themselves publicly of their challenges and emotional journeys in the world of TV. But Nicola is amazing. So she talks really openly about her cancer diagnosis while she was MD of the garden, which I found really moving, but also very motivating. You know, she talks very candidly about that moment that she found out and thought, well, that's fine. I can just bump some meetings and carry on with work. And she actually ended up not being able to do that because her cancer was too aggressive. But she really wanted to talk about it to inspire other women to go and get checked for breast cancer. But also because she wanted she wanted to talk about her mindset about work at the beginning when she got that diagnosis versus during treatment and the perspective that it gave her afterwards. And she talks about bullying and all kinds of things that um, we as people coming up through the ranks in TV often experience. But I just found her conversation... And just her total outlook, really very inspiring. Also, I just, I don't know what she's going to do next. Did you, you know, you know she left the garden, Justin. And she won't tell me. Yeah, she won't tell me. She's moving on to new things and I can't wait to see what, what she does next. Claire Hill, heroine of the week. And uh, who or what are you chucking in the bin? Oh, I love this bit of your show. And I was going through all the people that were sort of obvious and I thought, well, you know, Philip Schofield's 
in the bin because he's now no longer presenting this morning. But actually, it was sparked. This was sparked by a conversation um, I sort of became part of and then very quickly extracted myself from at the gym the other day. So going in the bin is the anti-woke brigade. I can't bear people who say, oh, all this woke stuff and all this mental health stuff. It's just too much these days. It wasn't any of that in my day. Honestly, I it, my blood was boiling as I was part of this conversation. I, I was I was getting ready for a class and these two people were talking and trying to involve me. And they were going on about our mental health awareness week as, as it was last week. And then this older chap starts talking about how oh, well, nothing's changed in 2000 years. So why is everyone now suddenly off work with a mental health problem? I mean, in my day, you just have to crack on and it was brilliant. And I was thinking, and he was looking at me to try and get me to join in. And I'm not very good in these situations. I'm I'm much better at considering a response and coming back later than in the moment. But all my life, it made my blood boil. I mean, I just thought, what? So the world is a better place when we are being bullied. The world is a better place when we can't talk about depression or what's happening in our life that's making us upset. Is it? Is it all so much better if we screw that lid on tight and shake it up and then put it in the sun for a bit? I just can't bear it. And using those words as well about, you know, the woke generation, I'm like, well, sorry, but if woke means being empathetic and open to the injustices in the world, then I'm as woke as they come. So he could get in the bin, that guy at the gym. All right, guy at the gym, <laughs> get in the bin. <laughs> Kimberly, thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed having a chat. Fascinating time for you, obviously, and for the industry. And everyone, check out The Imposter Club on all your podcast platforms. Thank you, Justin, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks a lot. Lovely to chat to you. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all for this week's show. Thanks for listening. We've teamed up with K7 Media to bring you Like and Subscribe, an exclusive free 23-page report on the UK digital first and creator economy. You can download it for free now at telecast.com forward slash downloads. That's telecast.com forward slash downloads. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. We'll see you again next week. Until then, stay safe.